I've been, of course, preaching from the book of Daniel for the past uh, eight weeks. Josh, of course, preached last week, and today we're going to preach from Daniel chapter 9, and this may be the last one from this series that we're, we're going to do, and uh, so we'll see where the Lord leads next week and for the remainder of this year. I'm going to uh, read five verses in your hearing from Daniel chapter 9 today the New American Standard. It says this, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdoms of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Today I want to preach, uh, hopefully for not too long, on this thought, the power of repentance, the power of repentance. God bless you, you may be seated today. We are people who are very slow to ask for forgiveness, very slow to say that I am sorry. Kids, you don't have to teach a, a child how to sin or to be disobedient, to break the rules. They just do that, right? If you have kids, you've seen that. If you have younger siblings, if you have grandkids, if you remember what you were like as a child, you know that just breaking rules is part of our innate, fallen human nature. But when a, a child does something wrong, and then you tell that child to say they're sorry, then it gets interesting. And in reality, unfortunately, is that most of the time parents don't really even care if they're sorry. They just want the child to learn to say that they're sorry. Anybody ever been there? Your ch children ever do that? Sorry. You know, make a face, make whatever. Like, and, and they will finally say it if you, ha if you threaten enough punishment, they will say that they are sorry. And, but almost never are they going to ask for forgiveness. It's just not what our fallen human nature wants to do. It's not the way that that we, we act, and, and even as adults, those, those words are very small, and they're easy to say if we're by ourselves, you know, we practice, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? But in our interactions with people, those little easy words become very difficult and very hard for us to say and for us to actually really even mean that we are sorry. It's no wonder that we're like this because Adam and Eve, when, when they sinned in the garden, when they ate of the fruit and, and Eve, she eats of the fruit because the serpent is trying to convince her that it's good and that what God has said is not really true. So she eats of the fruit and she doesn't die right, right away. So she's like, hey, no big deal. And so she gives to Adam and the Bible tells us that Adam wasn't deceived, that he knew what he was doing was wrong. In the, in the book of Romans, it tells us this, and he eats of the fruit. And then, of, 
as you know that God would come and walk with them in the cool of the day and talk with them. Not that they could see him, but they could hear his voice and they could interact with him. And so when it came time for God to meet with them in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve hide themselves. They realize that something has changed. And in fact, what God has said would happen has happened. Now they know right from wrong. They know that. They have, they have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They know that what they have done is wrong. But instead of confronting their wrongness, and confronting their sin and, and asking forgiveness for their sin, they hide. They don't want God to interact with them. They don't want God to see them. And so when God does show up and he's like, hey, where are you? And Well, we're, we're afraid. And why are you afraid? Because we've eaten of the tree. And, and so God confronts them with their sin, but still they don't, they don't confess their sin. In fact, Adam uses this, he said, it's your fault, God, basically because the woman you gave me, she's the one that got me to eat this. And Eve doesn't really confess. She said, it's not my fault, it's the serpent. And in essence, God, you allowed the serpent in here, so ultimately, God, it's all your fault. That he's the one that's responsible for their sin. They, they do not ask for forgiveness. They do not say that they're sorry and so it's no wonder that you and I have that same struggle with, with asking forgiveness and saying that we're sorry, especially with our human counterparts. The question is, can we do that? Can we say that we're sorry? Can we ask for forgiveness when we are indeed wrong and when we have sinned against God? That's the most important thing. And our, our relationship with people is is secondary to that but it is still important as God wants us to have a relationship with people that is has no hindrance and has nothing in that is standing in the way of our relationship with one another but ultimately that relationship with God is of utmost importance here in our text today Daniel has remembered the words of the prophet where God had told Jeremiah that they would be in captivity for 70 years. They're getting close to the 70-year mark. And so he's wondering what God is going to do about the 70 years. There doesn't seem to be any end in sight to this 70 years of captivity. And so Daniel begins to repent, not only for himself, but for the people of Israel. And I'm going to focus on repentance, but let me give you one more thing before I get into the meat of my message, and that is, it is this, is that there is a great similarity between Daniel, the prophet, and Joseph that we see in Genesis, the son of Jacob. Both are men who have a lot of dreams, men that God speaks to through dreams, and both are men that God allows to interpret dreams. That he doesn't just give them dreams, but he allows them to interpret their dreams and to interpret the dreams of others. And, maybe most importantly for our text today, is that Daniel and Joseph both rise to prominence in a strange land. For Joseph, he is the second in command of Egypt. The only person above him is the Pharaoh. And for Daniel... 
He rises up into the next level below the king of the Babylonians and also of the Medes and the Persians. He rises to prominence and position in a foreign land. And if I could say it this way, if I could say it this way, it's, it's that he is, in essence, the highest ranking member of the nation of Israel. Even though it's a strange land and even though there is no capital in Jerusalem and even though there is no king, he is the highest ranking member. And so when he offers up his repentance and his prayer to God, I would say that maybe it has a little bit of a special emphasis that he does not just repent for himself, but he repents for the nation. But I, I want to draw out to you from your, for your listening today five truths about repentance. The first truth about repentance is this, is that repentance requires more than words. Look at your neighbor, however sparse they may be, and say it requires more than words. Daniel is, in verse 3, it tells us, he says, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. That he's not just offering up words to the Lord, but he is fasting. And of course, fasting is the abstaining from food and drink in certain settings, but at least food that he is choosing not to eat as a sign and a demonstration to God of his seriousness about the subject and his seriousness about repentance. Not only is he fasting and abstaining from eating, but he puts himself in sackcloth. It's like you've seen big potato sacks, that, hard, that rough canvas. It's similar to that. He, he's wearing that. He's not wearing the silk robes that he would wear normally in the fine linen He is putting himself in sackcloth, which would be, if you can imagine, wearing a burlap sack, very irritating on the skin. And and if that's not enough, he sits in ashes, covers himself with ashes as a sign of of, of his mourning and his, his understanding that his nation and the people have sinned against God and as a sign of his sorrowfulness over their sin. I'm not telling you today that we need to get in sackcloth and ashes when we repent. I would tell you that fasting is not a bad idea. But sackcloth and ashes, probably not something we would do in our culture. But fasting or repentance still must be more than words. It must be from the heart. You can't just say, I'm sorry, but you have to mean it. It can't be like the, the child that you're raising and you're forcing them to kiss and make up or to say they're sorry and you don't really care if they mean it. You just want them to stop. It has to be from the heart. James tells us, speaking of faith, he says, if a man says that he has faith, but he doesn't have works, then he's a liar. That he's not really, he doesn't really have faith, he just says he does. That in that setting you have to have works that demonstrate your faith in God. And what I would tell you is this, is that when it comes to repentance, that it's not enough for us just to say that we're sorry. But it has to be from the heart. 
that there has to be a change and a transformation for in, in our heart of what we're going to change from and what we're going to begin to do. The New Testament word for repentance is the Greek word metanoia. You've seen the word meta, M-E-T-A. It's metanoia. Look at your neighbor just for and tell them and say that word, metanoia. Not, not you annoy me, but metanoia. And what it means is this. And I may have demonstrated this for you before, I don't know. But it was a, a Greek military term that means about face. You're familiar with that in the military, soldiers marching one way, and I'm not going to attempt to march, and they're like about face. They turn 180 degrees and go the other way. That the word for repentance in the Bible means an about face. That you're going one way, you're doing one path, you're following your own desires or whatever, and you decide to repent, that means you turn around and decide to follow God and do His way and His plan. It's not just saying the words, that doesn't accomplish anything, but you have to have a change of heart, a change of attitude, a change of life when you really repent. It is more than words. Second thing is this, is that repentance acknowledges our sin. It can't be, well, if we've done anything wrong. You ever had anybody that has offended you, they've done something, they've mistreated you, and they come to you and go, well, if I've done anything. And you're like, yeah, you've done something. Anybody ever had that happen? You know they've done something. They know they've done something. They just don't want to admit it. Well, if I've done anything. It can't be that way with God. Oh, God, if I've just done anything. No, His Word tells us what we're supposed to do. His Word tells us what we're not supposed to do. So let me read this rather lengthy piece of of Daniel chapter 9 where Daniel is acknowledging his sin and the sins of his people and listen to the specificity of what he is saying. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his word which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring us to great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning away 
from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which we has done, he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on the desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. He doesn't beat around the bush and say, well, you know, maybe a few people, Lord, they didn't listen. They didn't listen to your prophets and they disobeyed you. But he lays it out saying, we have sinned against you. You sent us prophets, you sent us a word, and we ignored all of your words. We ignored your prophets, and you have promised that you would send us into captivity. But just like you brought us out of Egypt, Lord, now that the the 70 years is about up, and now that we have learned our lesson, and now that we are repenting, Lord, would you forgive and would you restore us? That's what repentance is all about. It is acknowledging our sin so if I could ask this question what is your sin what is it that you need to confess today what do we as a nation need to confess you can look around us and see that our nation is far from the nation that was founded upon godly biblical principles But a nation is made up of individuals, and we are they. And that just like Daniel, he doesn't blame it all on them. He puts himself as we have. Not our nation has, not the others, Lord, but we have and I have. And I would tell you that even though you may be walking with Jesus, none of us are perfect. In fact, John records it this way in 1 John. He says, if a man says that he has no sin, he deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. For every one of us this side of heaven need to offer repentance because we have sin in our lives. Not that that is an excuse to sin, not that that is a justification to sin, but we do sin, and when we do, we must repent. Not only asking or forgiveness, not only stating our sorrowfulness, but attempting to turn from our sin. Third thing I would tell you is this, is that repentance mobilizes the angels. While Daniel was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, he says, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel came 
Gabriel, of course, is one of the chief angels that God uses, and he is a chief messenger angel. And that Gabriel comes and speaks with Daniel in the middle of his repentance and in the middle of his prayer. Now, I would not tell you that every time you repent, angels are coming to visit you. I've never seen an angel. I'm sure they're all around us even now. But I've never been privileged to see an angel, and privilege may be the wrong word because most people, when they see angels in the Bible, they get very afraid. So I've not been scared because I've seen an angel. But the Bible does tell us that the angels of heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. So at minimum, what I would say is that when somebody repents, the angels have a party. That they're rejoicing over the fact that somebody has repented and has decided to follow Jesus Christ and come into the kingdom. So whether they come with a message or whether they're just rejoicing in heaven, they are mobilized to do something because of our repentance. And the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 1.12, it says this, it's that the angels desire to look into and they long to look into our salvation. That they themselves do not have any chance and any opportunity for repentance. And so when we repent and God allows us to repent and God forgives us, the angels, they can't understand that and comprehend that, so they long to look into it and they rejoice when we repent. Fourthly, repentance allows us to receive from God. Daniel is praying the the thing that motivates his prayer of repentance is the prophecy that in 70 years God would restore Israel. That he would get them out of the land and they would begin to build the temple and they would begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and they would begin to inhabit once again their land. And when Daniel repents, God doesn't give him a word and says, yep, that's what I'm going to do. But he gives him a different word. Gives him a new word. And this new word is about Jerusalem and it is about the holy city, but it is also about a time that is still to come. It is one of those eschatology or end time passages He says this, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, 
will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now you probably, unless you're familiar with this already, most of that made no sense to you. Let me sum it up for you. A week is a seven-year period. And the angel tells Daniel that there are going to be 69 seven-year periods. Then at that time, Messiah will be cut off. and Then there's going to be a 70th seven-year period. And all of this, the first 69 weeks are leading up till the time of Jesus Christ, till the Messiah has come. And then there is this gap that we're living in right now that's almost 2,000 years old. But there is still coming a seven-year period that people call the Great Tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble or the wrath of God or the day of the Lord and a variety of different things that they call that seven-year period. The best, really the best name for it is Daniel's 70th week because that covers it all and then how you interpret the rest of that and how you interpret that it fits in there can vary by person to person. But ultimately, what is important is this, is in that final seven-year period, which I think is getting close to being upon us, the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel and confirm it with many for seven years. He's going to make a seven-year covenant. And when he makes that seven-year covenant, everything is going to seem to be good for a period of time for the first three and a half years. But in the middle of the week, at the three and a half year mark of that time, then the Antichrist will set up an image in the temple in Jerusalem that is allowed to be rebuilt by the signing of the covenant. And he will pronounce himself to be God and people will then be made to worship him. And when that happens, what Jesus said in Matthew 24 is there will enter a time of tribulation such as has never been nor ever shall be. The great tribulation will ensue from the middle of that. And that act of the Antichrist setting that up, it is the abomination of desolation. It was mentioned a little bit last week both as as Josh preached and at the end of the service. But it is a future thing that is yet to come. But I would tell you, even though it's been almost 2,000 years since the end of the 69th week, the beginning of this 70th week is not too far away. That all you have to do is, as they say, look at the signs of the times and look around us. Look at the technology and look at the agendas and look at the various things that people are wanting to do and we are getting close. To that last seven years. Now God is in charge of everything. And he can stop it at any moment. He can delay it. Whatever he does. He's God and I'm for it. But I want to be ready. For when that seven years gets here. That I want to be walking with Jesus Christ. I want to be living a life of repentance. So that I am ready. But the point from this passage is this. Is that when we repent. We are God. 
will speak to us and it allows us to receive what God wants. And maybe it's not a word from him, but repentance at least allows us to receive his forgiveness. That there is no forgiveness if we refuse to repent. But repentance allows us to receive from God. Let me hurry. That's 27 minutes in. Repentance, number five, is this. Repentance moves the heart of God. Ultimately, what I would tell you is this. Whether you see angels or whether you don't. Whether you receive a word from a God or whether you don't. Ultimately, what I know is this. is that repentance moves the heart of God. That the same God who would not allow the angels to repent. That he wouldn't allow Lucifer to, to say, oh, you know what, God, I, I shouldn't have done that. Will you forgive me and let me stay in heaven? And the angels that decided to follow Lucifer, he didn't allow them to repent and stay in heaven, but he kicked them out. With no hope of salvation for us, God doesn't do it that way. That when we repent, God's heart is softened toward us, and he then will forgive. When Solomon was making, building the first temple, and he's dedicating the temple and he goes through all of these different things because he has seen God punish the people of Israel over and over and over again when he says, Lord, if we sin and if we do all of this wickedness and you punish us and send us into captivity, if we repent, will you forgive? Three times he does that in 1 Chronicles 7.14 or 2 Chronicles 7.14 is his response and all of you, are, you know that if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. And what God has said over and over, if you just repent, I'll, I'll, I'll soften my heart toward you. I'm looking to forgive. I'm looking to restore. I'm looking to bring you back into relationship. Repentance moves the heart of God. Over and over, Israel went through that cycle, and every time they repented, God restored them. The Ninevites, when Jonah goes and he preaches this message that God gives him, 40 days, Nineveh shall be destroyed. 40 days, Nineveh shall be destroyed. He doesn't say 40 days and if you don't do X, Y, Z, 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. End of story. But when they repented, God changed his mind and did not destroy them. And what I would tell you is the message that he had Jonah preach was just to get them to that point of repentance. That point of change, that point of asking for forgiveness. The New Testament tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And if I could paint it in this context of repentance, the humble is the one who said, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And the proud are the ones who say, like the story that Jesus told, of the Pharisee and the publican. When that publican said, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And the Pharisee said, I'm sure glad I'm not like him. But I want to be in the camp of the publican and the sinner that's going, Lord, I'm a sinner, will you forgive? Instead of the Pharisee that says, well, I sure am glad I'm more holy than they are. Would you stand together today?
Repentance requires more than words. Repentance acknowledges our sin. It mobilizes the angels. It allows us to receive from God. And it moves the heart of God. So I thought about this message and how to finish this message. And understand that repentance is required for salvation. That repentance is an essential part of walking with God and an essential part of the Christian life. Luke 13, 3 says this, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you don't repent, you perish. Mark 1, 15 And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Luke 24, 47, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Then Peter, on the day of Pentecost, standing, preaching the first message of the church, when asked, what do we do? What do we need to do to be saved? His first word was this, repent. It doesn't start, it doesn't stop there, but it does start there. And for most of you, if not all of you in this room, you have done that. You have walked through repentance. And you have chosen to believe the gospel and you have chosen to serve Jesus Christ. But I would tell you that repentance is not a one-time event. It's not a one and done. But it is an ongoing process. In fact, I would tell you that it should be a daily process. Paul said it this way in Galatians, I die daily. What he's saying is, is I'm crucifying my flesh every day. Not doing what I want to do, but doing what he wants me to do. How many of you want to do what he wants you to do every day? So going back to the questions that, that I asked you at the beginning, or in my introduction, what do you need to confess today? What sin needs to be eradicated and removed from your life? And it probably varies for you from day to day or week to week. Or maybe it's the same thing over and over that you deal with and you struggle with. And God understands that too. The Bible says that we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He understands. He's not justifying it, but he's not taken by surprise when we sin. So what I would ask you today, think about 
look inwardly and ask the Lord to speak to you about whatever it may be that you need to work on. And know this, that God is, He's not standing looking at you. He doesn't have a hammer. He doesn't have a fist. But He has open arms. That He's saying, I just want you to come. And sin separates you from me. So if you get rid of the sin, you can come. And even if you've come before, as you sin, it pushes you far, further away and it breaks that relationship. So as we get ready to sing, would you close your eyes and would you just ask the Lord to reveal anything to you that may be in your life that you need to remove? Any sin in your life that may need to be taken away? Would you do that right now?